otherwise be lacking. So I'm sort of willing to oppose the scholarly consensus, including this passage, part of John's Gospel. The Jesus we meet here is the same Jesus we meet everywhere else in the Gospels. The teaching is the same. We know from Matthew 7, he said, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And that fits with this passage. And of course, the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the message of this text is good news for bad people through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And that's the message of the Bible. So now let's go to the text and see what it says. So if you turn with me to John 8, actually I'll be starting at John 7, 53. If you're wondering about that weird break, remember all the verse numbers were added in about a thousand years later. Originally written, they didn't have verse numbers. And uh, sometimes you question why they put them where they put them. Anyway, it says... They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older one. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We need it. We thank you for giving it to us. We thank you for making us your people. Once again, we come to your word, and today we find a passage that makes us uncomfortable. We find a passage that exposes our sin, our guilt, and our shame. Things we want no one to see. Help us to see the true meaning of forgiveness. Show us our need for that forgiveness, and show us how to find that forgiveness. Help us to see the grace of the gospel in John chapter 8. So we pray, have mercy on us this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray. Amen. And amen. Rebecca Thompson fell twice from the Fremont Canyon Bridge. And she died both times. The first fall broke her heart. The second fall broke her neck. She was only 18 when her and her 11-year-old sister were abducted by a pair of thugs near a store in Casper, Wyoming. They drove the girls 40 miles southwest to the Fremont Canyon Bridge. 
a one-lane steel beam structure rising 112 feet over the North Platte River. The men brutally beat and raped her. She somehow convinced them not to do the same to her sister Amy, but both were thrown over the bridge into the narrow gorge. Amy died when she landed on a rock near the river, but Rebecca slammed into a ledge and was ricocheted into deeper water. With her hip fractured in five places, she struggled to the shore. To protect her body from the cold, she wedged herself between two rocks and waited until the dawn. But the dawn never came for Rebecca. Well, the sun came up and she got found. Physicians treated her wounds. The courts imprisoned her attackers. Life continued, but the dawn never came. The blackness of her night of horrors lingered. She was never able to climb out of the canyon. So 19 years later, she returned to the bridge. Against her boyfriend's pleading, she drove 70 miles an hour to the North Platte River. And with her two-year-old daughter and boyfriend at her side, she sat on the edge of the Fremont Canyon Bridge and wept. And through her tears, she retold her story. The boyfriend didn't want the child to see her mother cry, so he carried the toddler to the car. That's when he heard her body hit the water. And that's when Rebecca Thompson died her second death. The sun never dawned on Rebecca's night. Why? What eclipsed the light from her world? Fear, perhaps. She had testified against the men pointing them out in the courtroom. One of the murderers had taunted her by smirking and sliding his finger across his throat. On the day of her death, the two had been up for parole. Perhaps fear of the second encounter was too great. Was it anger? Perhaps. Anger at a rapist, anger at the parole board, anger at herself for the thousand faults and the thousand nightmares that followed, or anger at a god for a canyon that grew ever deeper and a night that grew ever darker and a dawn that never came. Was it guilt? Some think so. Despite Rebecca's attractive smile and appealing personality, friends say that she struggled with the ugly fact that she survived and her little sister didn't. Was it shame? Perhaps. Everyone knew, and thousands she didn't know had heard the humiliating details of her tragedy. The stigma was tattooed deeper with the newspaper ink of every headline. She had been raped, she had been beaten, she had been shamed. And try as she might to outlive and outrun the memory, she never could. So 19 years later, she went back to the bridge. Canyons of shame run deep. Gorges of never-ending guilt. Walls riven with the greens and grays of death. Unending echoes of screams. Put your hands over your ears. Splash water on your face. Stop looking over your shoulder. Try as you might to outrun yesterday's tragedies. Their tentacles are longer than your hope. They draw you back to the bridge of sorrows to be shamed again and again and again. If it was your fault, it would be different. If you were to blame, you could apologize. If the tumble into the canyon was your mistake, you could respond. 
you weren't a volunteer, you were a victim. Sometimes your shame is private. Abused, molested, seduced, no one else knows. But you know, and that's enough. Sometimes your shame is public. A divorce you didn't want, a disease you didn't expect, a handicap you didn't create. And whether it's actually in their eyes or just in your imagination, you have to deal with it. You think you're marked. Whether private or public, real or imagined, shame is always painful. And unless you deal with it, it's permanent. Unless you get help, the dawn never comes. You probably won't be surprised when I say that there are Rebecca Thompsons in every city and Fremont Canyon Bridges in every town. And there are many, many Rebecca Thompsons in the Bible. So many, in fact, it almost seems that the pages of Scripture are stitched together with their stories. You've already met some in this series. Each are acquainted with the hard floor of the canyon of shame. But there is one woman whose story embodies them all. A story of failure, a story of abuse, a story of shame. And that's her, the woman standing in the center of the circle. The men around her are religious leaders, Pharisees, self-appointed custodians of conduct. And the other man, the one in the simple clothes, the one sitting on the ground, the one looking at the face of the woman, that's Jesus. He's been teaching. The woman has been cheating. And the Pharisees are out to get a bull. And that brings us to our text this morning. So turn with me again to John chapter 8. We're going to start at the very end of John 7. The first thing we see is the lack of forgiveness. The lack of forgiveness. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So we start with Jesus going to the Mount of Olives, just outside the walled city of Jerusalem. He didn't have his own home to go to, but he was at home with his father. So knowing what's facing him in the days ahead, he went to one of his favorite places to pray. The text lets us know that he got up early and entered Jerusalem and came back to the temple to teach the people. People who didn't always accept him and people who'd been led astray by false and shallow teaching. Despite almost certain opposition, Jesus returned to the temple court where he once again had to face his enemies. So Jesus comes back to teach the people. And I think Jesus must have loved doing this. He probably explained things to them that were really important about life with God. And here, teaching in the temple, he came in contact with many different kinds of people, including women of less fortunate experience and reputation. Women whose illusions regarding men were long gone. 
women whose eyes saw piercingly and whose lips were well-versed in phrases of contempt. And all of a sudden, the scribes and Pharisees show up with just such a woman. See, they caught her in the act of adultery. For all practical purposes, she's already been charged, tried, and convicted when they drag her into the temple courts, when they pull her through the crowds of people who stare at her in contempt, and when they make her stand in front of Jesus. I think it's rapidly becoming clear that they have misused a person. She had, as verse 4 says, been caught in the act of adultery. It's clear in the Greek this is an action she's used to. For her, adultery is a way of life. She's a professional at it, and she's without excuse. She had been caught in the act. There's no way she could say, hey, I was just passing through. It's a mistaken identity. You've got the wrong person. But she's guilty. So they dragged her and her sin out into the open in front of the crowds, and they made her stand in front of Jesus while they played with the story of her shame. But you know, they don't care one whit about this woman. And they don't care one whit about upholding the law either. Verse 6 makes that clear, that they're trying to track Jesus. And they're just using this woman as bait. And if they had to stone her to smithereens to get Jesus, so be it. She's expendable. And when you treat people as things, even people who sell themselves without conscience, you dehumanize them. You destroy something precious inside them. Whether you use people for your own pleasure or just to prove your point, even a religious point, you're treating those people as things. Things to be used instead of people to be loved. And the scribes and the Pharisees are looking at this woman not as a person, but as a thing. As something they can use to bring charges against Jesus. So they're using her, or misusing her, as you might use a worthless pawn in a game of chess. To them, she has no name, no personality, no heart, no feeling, no soul. She's just another expendable pawn in their strategy to checkmate Jesus. And not only have they misused a person, but they've misused the scriptures. They're well acquainted with the law. You can't help uh, but think they had to know that they're twisting the scriptures to their own end. Verse 5, they say to Christ, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? In effect, they're putting Jesus' knowledge of God's word on the line right here in front of the crowds. They're saying, come on, Jesus, do you dare go against Moses and the law, even if it means failing to display the forgiveness you've been teaching these people about? What do you say now, Jesus? If you say yes, go ahead and stone her. These people aren't going to believe anything you've said about love and compassion. Your credibility will be shot. No one will follow you, be considered nothing but a hypocrite, your ministry will be over, finished, kaput. However, if you say, no, don't stone her, then you're condoning her sin and disobeying the law of Moses, and by association, you can be considered guilty of the same sin. And we can stone you too. We've got you now. 
We've got you between a rock and a hard place. Literally. So what will it be, Jesus? Do we stone her? Or do we stone you? However, they put words in Moses' mouth that Moses never said. In ancient and medieval world, there existed this despicable practice of having rulers sleep with women just before they got married to show his dominance and authority over all the people. And the law the Pharisees are referring to is in Deuteronomy 22, and it's expressly written to prevent such a theft of marital rights. It referred to women who are both virgins and engaged to be married. And it doesn't appear from this text that this woman met either qualification. Second, the law explicitly provides that both parties be punished. Adultery is not an offense that be, can be committed alone. So where's the guy? Why hasn't he been dragged in front of the crowds? Either he's fleeter of foot than she, and he ran away, leaving her to face uh, hostile accusations on her own, or the accusers themselves are sufficiently chauvinistic to focus exclusively on the woman. It's clear, however, the scribes and Pharisees are not there to uphold the law, for they're badly misusing it in their attempt to trap Jesus. And while there's a complete lack of forgiveness on their part, their actions have made plain the need for forgiveness. The need of forgiveness. Starting in the middle of verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older one. So Jesus has been confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees, and so he says nothing. And end of verse 6 says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Do you ever wonder what he wrote? Maybe he wrote the Ten Commandments. Maybe he was listing their sins. Maybe he was writing the names of their wives and then their girlfriends. The long-standing interpretation of the church is that he wrote Jeremiah 17, 13. The text doesn't tell us that. Church history does. Jeremiah 17, 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. After all, one of the last things he said before this is John 7:38. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We don't know for sure. Whatever he wrote was for their eyes and not ours. One Bible teacher wrote, I believe that when our Lord stoops down to the ground, ignores his adversaries, and writes in the dust, 
He not only is prevented from looking upon this woman's nakedness and shame, but he also attracts the attention of the crowd to himself rather than to her. I admit no one I've read has come to this conclusion, but it sounds just like our Lord. The scribes and the Pharisees want to put this woman on display, shaming her in public. Jesus seems to take the spotlight off of her and puts it on himself. And can't you just see the Pharisees fixing their eyes on the ground, stooping down to see what Jesus is writing? But he has the right to challenge them, and he doesn't condemn the woman. Even though he's the one being confronted here, it's obvious that the confronted is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate to both sides. He doesn't destroy the woman, and he doesn't destroy the Pharisees. And he would have been justified in doing either or both. But no, rather to everyone's amazement, and probably to everyone's discomfort, Jesus says nothing. Just writes in the dirt. Silence can be loud. And there are times when nothing a man can say is nearly so powerful as saying nothing. To argue brings them down to the level of those with whom he argues. Silence convicts them of their folly. They wish they hadn't spoken quite so quickly. They wonder what he thinks. You can just see it. The lips of Jesus tighten. His features show the strain of the preceding weeks. And in his eyes, there's the foreshadowing of bitter weeks to come. But no anger pours forth. He's unbelievably compassionate. He hasn't said a word. And because of Jesus' compassion, we see the confronters are convicted. In mounting frustration, obviously, having just come from a presbytery meeting, they keep questioning him. And so Jesus straightens up, stands up, and he says, verse 7, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. That's a direct reference to the law in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 17, where it says that the witnesses, the accusers, must be the first to throw the stones. But that they must not have ever participated in this type of offense themselves. Jesus knew they twisted the scripture, but he also knew what the law really said, and he interprets it correctly. And so he upholds the law fully. They had to be free from this same sin to take part. Jesus faced up to them and told them that only those who never lusted in their hearts or in their minds or in their flesh get to do any of the killing today. Only those who've never done it, never wanted to do it, and never thought about it get to throw any of the rocks. Placed between a rock and a hard place, Jesus stands firm. He refuses to compromise either his principles or the person for whom those principles were given. And now the accusers are standing there convicted of the same sin as the accused. And one by one, hands open up and stones thud to the ground. Convicted by their own conscience, these champions of morality drew their garments around them and slipped away, the oldest ones first. Age has a tendency to temper self-righteousness. And so those with the most guilt and the most wisdom 
leave first. The men quietly file out and disappear until the court of the temple is empty except for the two most important people in the story, Jesus and the woman. Only they were left. And we're given this privileged view of a private moment. And so we see the result of forgiveness. Starting in the second half of verse 9. The result of forgiveness. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Soon the woman realizes the noise level around her has decreased. And she looks tentatively around for this crowd that's supposed to kill her. And all the men who dragged her there are gone. And instead of seeing 40 pairs of feet surrounding her, she sees just one. And I don't... I think she just... You must have been shocked. She probably looked at those feet in surprise. Partially because these feet didn't have on the sandals of a rich man. Now these are the shoes of a Galilean fisherman. Not the feet of a man who spent hours every day being pampered and perfumed in the Roman bath. They're calloused feet. They're sunburned feet. They're dusty feet. They're the feet of a man who walked miles and miles and miles out of his way one time just to put his arm around a Samaritan woman and tell her everything was going to be okay. Then she looked at the hem of his garment. It wasn't Brooks Brothers or Calvin Klein. It's homespun, kind of frayed at the edge. And she looked at his cloak and his cloak was no better. And she looked at his physique, and I don't believe his physique was much better than average. Besides, in her profession, what's one more physique, more or less? And then she looked up at his face. Josephus, the historian, tells us he looked like every other Nazarene, which means that he was a Mediterranean Jew, probably with an olive complexion. He had black hair, it was probably curly. He had a black beard, because that was the style at the time. I don't know if his hair was long or short. It doesn't matter. But when she looked into his eyes, she realized she wasn't just looking into the eyes of another Galilean Jew, another itinerant preacher. She was looking into the eyes of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the fairest of 10,000. And she, who knew men more than most men know one another, responds to his power and speaks to him reverently, he looks at her and he says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. She knows now that she's free. The charges were dropped when the stones hit the ground. And the Lord has made clear, I don't condemn you. I love you. I forgive you. I came to die for you. This woman, this bold sinner, is now face to face with overwhelming grace. And grace breaks through. If you stop and think about it, there's only one person there who met the qualifications to stone this woman. There's only one person there without sin. Jesus himself. 
We have this amazing contrast between these two people, the guilty and the guiltless, the adulteress and the advocate, the sinner and the savior. And demonstrating the truth of John 1.14, that Jesus is truly full of grace and truth. He forgives the sinner without condoning the sin. He says, go, and from now on, sin no more. And that's wonderful. And that's amazing. But this is where we misuse this passage. When we hear Jesus say, neither do I condemn you, we think that means I'm no longer guilty. That's not what he said. Look closely. He's saying, brother, sister, I'm still holding you accountable for your sin. I demand conversion. I demand repentance. I demand to change your heart. I demand to change your life. There's a balance here. Jesus never says, you're not guilty. Because when he says, go, and from now on, sin no more, he's saying, you are guilty. So we're getting to the essence of Christianity right here. We're getting to the paradox and the beauty and the genius of it. Jesus says, you're guilty, but I don't condemn you. How can he say that? Well, the Bible tells you, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Bible says it's because of what Jesus Christ did that God can justify the ungodly and take condemnation away from the ungodly. Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we read, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That simply means that Jesus took your condemnation. He took your punishment. When you believe in him and you rest in him, your punishment is gone. You're guilty, but you're not condemned. You deserved it, but all the condemnation and all the penalty is gone. When Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, imagine what he's thinking, imagine what he's feeling. Because he knows, and now you know, what it would cost him to say that. Sister, I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. Yes, stones ought to be thrown, but they'll hit me. Spears ought to be thrust, but into my side. Thorns ought to be brought down, but onto my head. Come, I'll take your condemnation for you. And so she comes, and she calls him Lord. There's no blame shifting. There's no victim mentality here. He won't have it. There's truth. And then there's grace. And so the accusing men left with convicted consciences. And the accused woman left with a cleansed character. Her life was changed by being confronted with overpowering truth. Jesus doesn't condone her sin. He takes it. And so she leaves with a new start for a new life. It's an amazing story. But what do we do with it? What do we learn from it? What are the principles of forgiveness? 
Mandal writes on this passage that three truths emerge that we can apply in our relationship today. First, the practice of confronting sin calls for humility. This is not a place for pride. Jesus exhorts us in the Sermon on the Mount to look closely at our own lives before we look critically at the lives of others. He says, Matthew 7, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Paul reiterates this in Galatians 6, where he counsels the confronters to be cautious. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We have to ask, why this hostility to Jesus? I mean, to really understand that, you have to ask, why are the Pharisees in the New Testament at all? I mean, time after time, the Gospel writers trot the Pharisees out as the bad guys. You know, whenever I see them, I'm like, good night. These guys are morons. I'm glad I'm not like that. That very thought is Pharisaism. Looking at another sinner and thinking, I'd never do that. I'd never sink that low. The Pharisees are here in the Bible to bring to the surface our own sins and our own selfishness. We face a choice between defending self and desiring Christ. And we can't have both. And self can feel so good. I mean, the Pharisees are model citizens. They're the ones sticking their finger in the dike, holding back the forces of evil. But the New Testament treats them like villains. Why? Because they're too good for Jesus. They know better than Jesus. They're more concerned about morality than Jesus. And it's these wonderful people who crucified Jesus. And Jesus said, Luke 23, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Confronting sin requires humility. Second, condemning sin is based on righteousness. It's not just a matter of knowledge, of knowing about the sin. In his book, Guilt and Grace, Paul Tournier, the Swiss psychiatrist, explains that living in human society is like swimming in an ocean of criticism and contempt and shaming. For example, when rural rednecks scoff at sophisticated urbanites, and sophisticated urbanites laugh at rural rednecks, it's just guilty people doing their best to change the subject. You know, instead of rednecks and urbanites, I could have said Republicans and Democrats. Guilt is a social dynamic. And everyone wants God to join their side and say, sure, stone them. Are we so much without sin that we feel free to cast the first stone? Are your eyes so clear, so without loss, that you can see to remove the specks from the eyes of others? Are you so spiritual to restore others caught in any transgression in a spiritual gentleness? We're never called to condone sin, but we're not to condemn sinners either. 
So third, we get that correcting sin starts with forgiveness. We don't start with rebuke. Notice the pattern of Christ here. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. He isn't saying you have to be perfect from now on. He's saying to this woman, you've got to change. Why would he say that? Because he's basically telling her, I want you to enjoy me forever. I want us to stay close. You've just seen the dark power of a guilty conscience. You've seen it drive people far from me. Never forget what you've seen. And never forget the gracious words you've just heard. The purpose of obedience is not to set you apart from other sinners. The purpose of obedience is to keep you tender towards me. Live a new life. Reach out by faith for more. More of me and less of sin. Because Jesus is telling us that he's worth it. The Bible says in 1 John 1, If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Matt Chandler is a pastor in Texas. And he writes uh, in a book called The Explicit Gospel uh, a story about a time when him and a couple of his friends invited this young woman named King, uh, Kim, her name was Kim, to uh, go with them, to the, with this group of, of folks, to a gospel concert. And Matt was hopeful that Kim would hear the gospel and she'd come to Christ. But he describes that night in his book, and he describes it as a manipulative train wreck. In retrospect, he says he was grateful for the experience because it changed the way he saw how to proclaim holiness in light of the cross. He tells the story, he writes, a preacher came up on the stage and disaster ensued. He gave a lot of statistics about STDs. There was a lot of, you don't want syphilis, do you? His big illustration was to take out a single red rose, and he smelled the rose dramatically and caressed its petals and talked about how beautiful this rose was and how it had been fresh cut that day. And then he threw the rose out in the crowd and encouraged everyone to pass it around up and down the rows. As he neared the end of the message, he asked for the rose back. But by now, having passed through so many hands, it was broken and drooping and the petals were falling off. And he held up this now broken, ugly rose for everyone to see. And his big finish was, now who in the world would want this? His word and his tone were merciless. His message, which was supposed to represent Jesus' message to a world of sinners, was shaming. Don't be a dirty rose. Matt didn't hear from Kim for a few weeks. He thought he'd never hear from her again. So one day his, her mother called him to tell him that Kim had been in an accident. So Matt immediately went to the hospital to visit her. And he says in the middle, you could do that back then. They don't let us do that so much anymore. 
But he says, in the middle of our conversation, seemingly out of nowhere, she asked me, do you think I'm a dirty rose? My heart sank inside of me. And I began to explain to her, the whole weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus wants the rose. It's Jesus' desire to save, to redeem, and to restore the dirty roads. See, this passage is not primarily the story of an adulteress or the hypocritical religious leaders who cynically use her to attack Jesus. The central figure of this drama of immorality and hypocrisy and forgiveness is the Lord Jesus. And someday we will all stand before him. We'll stand in the same place as this guilty woman. We've all committed adultery, most of all adultery against God by loving things more than him. Yet he came not to condemn us, but to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Pharisees chose the path of denial and evasion but one thing I love about this story is the woman stands fast. She didn't run. She listened. What path are you choosing? Are you evading Jesus? Are you standing before him? Christ has so much authority, he should scare the living daylights out of us. But he has so much love and grace, he's the only one who can save us. See, there's days when that bold sinner is us, it's me, it's you. And therefore, each of us needs to turn to Christ and his word so that we can be overpowered by truth and overwhelmed by grace. Neither do I condemn you. You've ever wondered how God reacts when you fail? Frame those words and hang them on the wall. Read them, ponder them, drink from them, stand below them, let them watch over your soul. Or better yet, take them with you to your canyon of shame. Invite Jesus to sit next to you back at the Fremont Canyon Bridge of your world. Let him stand beside you as you retell the events of the darkest nights of your soul. And then listen carefully, because he's talking to you. Neither do I condemn you. And watch carefully, because he's writing to you. He's leaving a message, not in the sand, but on a cross. And not with his hand, but with his blood. And his message has these words, Neither do I condemn you, go and from now on, sin no more. So this morning, think about what Christ has said to you, and then pray about it. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. 
our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there are times when we take your grace for granted, when our hearts are weighed down by guilt and our minds are burdened with shame. We're too embarrassed to come to you in repentance. We're too broken to think that we can be made whole, and we're too ashamed to ask for your forgiveness. Again, this morning we thank you for the cross. For on the cross you were able to save us and condemn evil at the same time. On the cross you paid the penalty for our sin. On the cross you took the punishment we deserve. So please save us from our failure to trust your words that in you we are no longer condemned. Like this woman, let us look full in your wonderful face, full of glory and grace, and help us to be grateful. For we come in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive the Lord's blessing. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God bless you. See you next week.